Well, this morning we're beginning a brand new uh, series called The Invitational Life. And from a very young person, I always loved invitations. Whether I was invited for a sleepover or I was invited to a birthday party, I loved being invited. And that hasn't changed as an adult. I still really, really enjoy being invited to uh, different parties. Now, one of the things that has kind of become the highlight for me for invitation-wise is to be invited to a football stadium. And today, uh, the NFL will be starting. There will be tons of football games everywhere. And one of the areas that uh, I really want to get better at uh, is to check off things on my bucket list. And one of the things on my bucket list is to go to a football stadium that is in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and it's called the Big House. Has anyone ever been there before? Anyone been to the big house before? Okay, a couple of people. And uh, for me, uh, that's on my bucket list. Uh, if you would, I'd like you to turn to the person beside you and guess how many people can fit in the big house. So go ahead, tell the person beside you real quick how many can fit in the big house. Okay, well, the correct answer is 115,109 people. Now, what's really ironic about this is that the city of Ann Arbor is only 113,934. So, you have a city that has a venue in which every single person in the city could actually fit inside the stadium. Not including the students, but those who live year-round could actually fit there. Now that's pretty cool, isn't it? Everyone in the city could fit in that venue. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's really cool, Chris, but what does that have to do with church? Like, like I know it's the NFL, but what does that have to do with church? Well, what it has to do with church is that today we're going to look at a passage in Acts chapter 13. Acts is in the second half of the Bible in the New Testament, and it is a story that we're going to look at is about the early church. Uh, Acts are the acts of the early church. After Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven, the church started, and Acts is that story of all of the different acts that the early church experienced. Now, two of the leaders that were key leaders in the midst of this were two guys named Paul and Barnabas. And one day, they find themselves in a city that's called Pisidian Antioch. And it's in present-day Greece, just north of the Mediterranean Sea. And as Paul and uh, uh, Barnabas were, were there, they began to decide that we need to go to the local place of worship. So they go to the synagogue, which uh, usually would seat a couple hundred people. 
And they went to this place. And as they walked in, there was someone who greeted them and said, hey, welcome. We're glad you're here. That's why if you're not volunteering, you should because you like to be welcomed. And there are other things you could do to help us to serve. And so there was someone that welcomed them and said, hey, I think you're new. I don't think I've seen you before. Uh, could you uh, tell me your name? And they're like, yeah, I'm Paul. And Barnabas goes, hey, I'm Barnabas. And uh, they're like, oh, well, we're glad that you're here. And they're like, well, where are you from? And you can read this in the scripture this week. But they actually say, well, we're just kind of walking around following the spirit of God. Like, that's where they were from. They're just walking around following the spirit of God. And in the midst of all of this, you can imagine that a person might ask them as they come into the synagogue, the place of Jewish worship, they may ask them, well, have you ever been to a synagogue before? Have you ever studied the Torah? That is the Old Testament, the stories of of God at that time. And I can imagine Paul saying something like, well, I have actually, I've been to a synagogue before and I actually do study the Torah. In fact, I study under a guy by the name of Gamaliel, Gamaliel. And uh, you're like, Gamaliel. Now, for those of us today, Gamaliel would be like, uh, who is that? Gamaliel. But in that day, if you were sitting there and you heard the word Gamaliel, you'd be like, oh my word. Like you actually study with that guy? Because this guy was like one of the smartest professors at at Harvard or Stanford or, you know, any of the big Ivy League schools or Oxford. And he was one of the best communicators uh, who was around. He was like Joel Olstein or, you know, Joyce Meyer, Craig Rochelle. If you heard the name uh, Gamaliel, you would know, oh my gosh, uh, you study with him. And then look at what happens next. They're in worship in this Jewish synagogue when The leaders of the synagogue see Paul and Barnabas there, and one of the leaders says to them, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. It would kind of be like if Joel Oldstein was sitting down here today, I wouldn't just keep on talking. I might say, hey, Joel, you want to come up here and have something to say? Like, you're a better communicator than me, so why don't you come up and you could do that? Well, Paul has a loud mouth and he can't keep it to himself. And they say, do you have anything to say? And he goes, yep, I actually do. I have something I would like to share. And Paul gets up and you will not believe what he does. He begins to start to teach. And as he's standing there, he's giving a history lesson of the Old Testament. But he starts talking about ordinary people in the Old Testament. Not the spiritual elite, not all of the people that are the religious elite. He just talks about ordinary average people. And then he says this, and we're here today as ordinary people. That's who Barnabas and I are. We're just ordinary people. And we're bringing you good news, the message that God has promised the fathers. In other words, the message of the Old Testament, what God has promised has come true for us, and it's through Jesus he raised. He raised Jesus. Then he goes on to say, 
I want you to know, my very dear friends, that it is on account of this resurrected Jesus that the forgiveness of your sins can be promised. And I'm sure at that time people were like, whoa, what's he talking about? We've had to do all these animal sacrifices and all of this, and now it's just through this resurrected Jesus. It goes on to say, he accomplishes in those who believe everything in the law of Moses. That is the first five books of the Old Testament. And you could never make good on. Everything that was in the law of Moses, it cannot make good on what this guy named Jesus has come, the resurrected one. And then he says, but everyone who believes in this raised up Jesus is declared what? What's it say? Good and right and whole before God. They are made good and right and whole before God. I love that. Every single person who believes in Jesus is declared good and right and whole. And my question for you this morning is this. Are you good and right and whole with God? Are you good and right and whole with God? Now, some people will spend all kinds of time. The truth is that many people will attempt and buy and push and strive and do everything to made to be made good and right and whole. They'll do all kinds of things to try to make that happen. But folks, this is what I want you to know. You do not have to do a whole bunch of religious gymnastics or go through a whole bunch of religious hoops to be made good and right and whole. What the scripture calls us to is to have a relationship with Jesus. That what makes you good and right and whole is a relationship with him. And maybe today is a day for some of you to make that commitment. For some of you, maybe today's the day where you're like, you know what? I don't understand everything about the Bible. I don't understand everything about this Jesus. But as much as I know, I want to follow him. I want him to be the center of my life. I think he can guide my life better than myself. And so today, I want to make that commitment. Maybe for others of you, you remember the place and the hour or the day when you realized that you could be made good and right and whole with God. And not having to do a bunch of religious gymnastics, but because of what Christ did to you and you experienced his grace and his forgiveness in your life. And it's because of that that you were made good and right and whole by believing in his story. Well, when Paul finishes sharing this message, people are stunned. They're like, all the religious leaders are always just putting us down. No one's talked about ordinary people and that this guy named Jesus could be the answer to everything in the Old Testament. And many of them came up asking questions. Paul, can you tell us more? Please, please share more with us. So Paul answered them. He was invited back seven days later to actually tell the story of Jesus and more of what Christ could do for them. And this is what it says. It says, when the next Sabbath came around, practically the, what's the next word? Whole city 
The whole city showed up to hear the word of God. Now, time out just for a second. Most scholars believe that the city of Pisidian Antioch was about 50,000 people. And if you remember, I shared at the beginning that most synagogues held a couple hundred people. So maybe just 200. And so if you do the math, basically what you find is that each person in the synagogue invited 250 people to go to church that next week. So not a high task for you, but next week. 250 of your favorite friends and family were expecting them to be here. See, some of you think we give you a hard time by encouraging you to invite one. On that time, if you do the math, it was 250 people that came. Well, when all these people show up, it becomes very apparent that the synagogue is not going to hold all of these people. And scholars believe at that point that what they did was they moved to the largest venue at the time, the amphitheater. And there's still uh, archaeological digs that show that it existed uh, even today. And it would be like Ann Arbor housing everyone who lives in the city in the big house. Can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine the energy? Can you imagine everyone, maybe in all of Muncie, like trying to come here to get in the jar and we're like, hey, you can't do it. We're going to Schumann Stadium. Like, we all got to go to Ball State because we don't have enough. And everyone be like, yes, this is so awesome. We're so excited about this. But what you need to know is not everyone was happy about this. There were some people that were not so excited about these invited guests who had come. The scripture says this, but when the Jewish leaders saw the crowds, they were, what's the next word? Jealous and cursed and argued against whatever Paul said. You see, as the people started filing into the synagogue, The religious leaders look around and they're like, I don't like this. And one of them walks up and they're like, you're sitting in my seat. That's my assigned seat. And you're sitting there. And I know what your life is like. You don't belong here. You don't belong here. You are not religious. You should not be here. Folks, as we continue to grow as a church, what if some people at the jar started as people walked in for the first time, filled with grace, walked in. What if people at the jar started saying, hey, you're sitting in my seat. That's where I sit. That's not where you sit. That's where where I'm supposed to sit. And oh, my gosh, look at you. Like, you don't look like me. You don't act like me. And you know what? I, I don't think you belong here. Well, the good news is, folks, is that we are not that kind of church. I believe exactly that we're not that. We're the kind of people that want people to come in to receive grace because we've received so much grace from God ourselves. 
We don't want to hold them off like the religious leaders. We want to say everyone's welcome. Everyone can come. Everyone's accepted in this place. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, you can come and receive grace. Grace that says there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. It's just about God's grace. You know, the scripture goes on to tell us that the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. And many people became disciples, true disciples of Christ. But the religious leaders were so irritated and upset that people were coming to Christ that they tried to shut it down. And they did so much so that they kicked Paul and Barnabas out and they had to go to a neighboring city. Now, a couple of questions that I think is important for us to ask ourselves with this story that we just read in Acts 13. The first one is this. What stops us from having an only God experience at the jar like what took place at Pisidian Antioch? What stops us from having an only God moment like that. And then secondly, what stops us from being so compelled by the love of Christ in our life and inspired by the Spirit's urgency that we want to invite every friend, every family member, every single neighbor to come and experience the love of God? Well, you know, I've been wrestling with that and praying about it this week. And what I came up with were kind of a, a three-step process of how transformation could actually come for us. I've seen part of that happen in my own life, and I want to share kind of this three-step process with you. And it's something that is not, you know, some crazy idea. It's just the way that it happens. And we want to do it by looking at this question of how can I go from simply pondering the invitational life to actually living it out on a daily basis? How can I go from simply pondering the invitational life to making it a daily priority in my world? So, there are three steps to this. This is your fill-in for today. And uh, here's the first step. For those of you on the stream, uh, you can put this on the app. Here it is. The first step is, for myself, I started pondering what an invitational life would look like. I actually started pondering kind of what is it that an invitational life would look like. Now... What you need to understand is that uh, before I was 26 years of age, I didn't even think about the invitational life. I was raised a PK, a pastor's kid, who had rebelled some, but I thought just being in church was enough, and uh, having church friends was enough. And so it was just me and the church people. And then at the age of 26, I started kind of pondering this idea of what an invitational life would look like. I mean, I knew there was this invitation from Jesus to me, a messed up person, and I wanted to share it. I just didn't know how to do it in an attractive way. 
Because for most of my experiences growing up as a kid, the ways that people would try to invite others to church or into Christianity always had a very negative undertone. For example, the one I remember the most was door knocking guy. Like the person that comes and just starts knocking on your door and they pound on it and you open it up and you think you're going to get a smile and they look at you and they go, I've got this track that says how you can go to heaven or you can go to hell. The choice is up to you. And there were these paper tracks and it would have all these things of like five steps to do this, not to go to hell, not to actually have abundant life, but just not to go to hell. And so there's door knocking guy. The second image I had was that of bullhorn guy. I'll never forget, uh, I think I was around 10, 11 years old. We went to Chicago and there was a guy with a great big bullhorn and he was yelling out. I'll never forget this. He, he yelled out these words, turn or burn. And I was like, oh my gosh. And it was like either turn to Jesus or burn and go to hell. Now come up here and talk to me. And I knew in my mind, I did not want to be like either one of those. But I didn't know how to share my faith in an attractive way. So what I did was I got into the Bible and as I started flipping through the pages and reading specifically Jesus's life, what I found is that his whole life was that of an invitation His entire life was filled with inviting people to come and experience God regardless of where they were at on the spiritual spectrum. And all of a sudden I saw that for Jesus, it wasn't something that he was just pondering. It actually became a value. And over time, it's become a value for me. And that's the second step that we go from this living an invitational life is that it becomes a value. It actually becomes a value. Now, uh, the first church that I ever pastored was in Flora, Indiana. And in Flora, Indiana, the population was about 2,000 people. And when I first went there to pastor, I knew nothing about the invitational life. But as I read the Bible, I actually started learning that it was a value to Jesus. But this is what I need you to understand. For the first three years I pastored, I knew it was in the Bible and I knew it was true of Jesus and it was a value for him. But it was not a value for me at all. It was not on my radar. Until one particular day, there were some sirens that started coming down our street. And they went down two houses to the neighbors. Now the reality is, the police had been at their house many times before. Most of the time, it was because they played heavy metal music about midnight and neighbors would complain about it. And they would go down there and tell them to quiet it down. And because of that, because I didn't get sleep sometimes, I never waved at these people. I never talked to them. I just ignored them. Plus, their kids would smoke cigarettes by the parking lot of the church and flick them out. And we'd have to pick them up. And these were just people that I was not going to be a part of. Well, the next day came and there was more police cars that were there. And I turned and I saw the police cars 
And I thought to myself, this were, these were my thoughts. Don't get involved. Chris, don't get involved. Don't take a risk. And I'll never forget because I walked out and I was on the porch and I got off the porch bench and I walked back inside of the house and I went to start reading scripture and praying because I'm a pious person. And so once I started reading and praying, there was this sense that God's spirit came to me. And it's difficult for me to say this, but as I was praying, no, no lying. Uh, I'm, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Take me out, God. But I get a phone call from one of the neighbors. And one of the neighbors said, hey, did you hear what happened down the street? I didn't even know their names. And I said, who's the neighbors? And they said, well, Maria and Ivan. And I go, no, I, I don't. And they said, well, Ivan committed suicide last night. And I wondered if you would go down and show some comfort. And I'm still ashamed to say it. Um, 27 years later. But I remember being on the phone. And I said, I'm pretty busy with some church work. I'm sorry, I can't help. And I hung up the phone. And I went back to praying and reading my Bible and, and all of that. When all of a sudden, the power of God came upon me in such a way, not audibly, but just in my spirit, that said, what are you doing? You have neighbors just down the road. They're going through the worst day of their life. And you're sitting here reading the Bible and trying to get closer to me. Get close to me by going down there. I remember I walked out the door, I took a left, went all the way down, two houses down, and when I walked in, I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but in the midst of a tragedy, there was a fog of grief that I'd never, never had in my life. And on this couch, there was Maria and her seven-year-old son, Tony, and she was holding on to him. And I didn't say a word. I just walked in. I said, hey, I'm Chris, the pastor of the church. They just kind of shook their head. And I reached down and I started to hug them. And we cried and cried and cried. You ever have some stories in your life where you can remember the moment and it never goes away? Because you realize in that moment, you dishonored God by not reaching out and loving people the way that God calls us to love them. And this day was a defining moment in my life. A moment in my life where I finally, for the first time, I could look at irreligious people who were far from God. And I wasn't looking through the eyes of Chris Bunch. I was looking through the eyes of Christ. And I realized in that moment that people matter. All people matter to God. Now, at Ivan's funeral, it was packed. There was more people there than had ever been there in the three years that I had ever pastored before. But these were different people. 
There were biker people and there were tatted up people and there were highly makeup people and all the religious people in the town showed up as well. And I remember I printed off just a picture and we had him run off on a little postcard of Jesus knocking on the door. And I gave an invitation at the end. I'd never done this in the three years I had pastored, but I gave an invitation at the end. I said, I'd like you all to pull out this card. And they pulled out this card of Jesus knocking on the door. And I said, Jesus is knocking on your door today. He's knocking on your hearts. And if you want to accept Jesus, I want to invite you to raise your hand. And at that point, there were 20 people that raised their hand. Now, I want you to know that had never happened at the Flora Church of the Brethren before. And so when I looked out there, I didn't think they understood what I was saying. I said, I literally said this, put your hands back down. And they're like, what? Like, yeah, put your hands down. Did you hear what I said? If you want to accept Jesus today, if you want him to be the center of your life, raise your hand. And all of a sudden it wasn't just 20, but there was more than 20 that time. And it was in that moment, it was defining for me, and it had become not just a value, but it actually became a priority. And that becomes the third step to the process of the invitational life. That it's not just a value that we have, but it actually is a daily priority. And making it a priority means rearranging my time now, my energy around and who I pray for and what that looks like to go and to engage with people and to share an invitation who are disconnected from Christ and the church. Now, in looking at these three different steps, I want to ask you a question. Where do you think is the largest gap within these three steps? It's between two and three, right? Between it just being a value and it being a daily priority in your life. There's like this great chasm between two and three, almost like the Grand Canyon, where you can have this idea that I value the invitational life, but am I actually making it a priority every day? And so as we come to kind of the end line, the finish line of the teaching today, I just want to walk through two quick questions uh, with you. And here's the first question. Do you hold the value of inviting people, but emotions like fear and insecurity speak louder? Do you hold that value and you're like, no, I really want to do that, but fear and insecurity often speak louder in your life. I remember uh, when we first started the church, we were actually trying to reach out to anyone and everyone. And my wife, Jennifer, had a friend uh, who she was doing residency work with. And the friend had just gone through a divorce and had a small child. And I said, uh, is there any way I can help? And she's like, well, uh, I don't have anyone to mow my lawn. I said, no problem, I'll mow it. I mowed it every single week for that entire summer. And one day, most days, she never came out and even acknowledged me. But one day, she actually came out and she put up her one finger. I remember like that, like, hold on for a second. So I let off the mower and she asked me this question. She said, hey, I know you started a church and I wondered if you could tell me what it was like because my son and I are thinking about coming. And again, 
I'm, I'm dying if I'm lying. This is what I said. We do good things for people. And then I started the mower again. And I just kept mowing. I just kept mowing and mowing and mowing. That was it. She never came. And do you know why? Because I was afraid. I felt insecure. I didn't know what to say or how to say it. I just got nervous. Have you ever had that moment before where the invitation is right there? The opportunity is there. Someone is looking at you in a certain way. Someone asks you a question, but instead of saying something, you're like, I just can't do it in your mind. You're like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And you just get out of the conversation really, really quickly rather than engaging them into an invitational experience. And maybe some of you, that's where you're at today. You're at that point where you believe in it. It's a value, but you're afraid. Here's the second question. Do you hold the value of inviting people, but never follow up with people after you invite them? Do you kind of say, hey, I I value this. You invite them, you take the risk, but you never follow up with them. I mean, this is what... Uh, statistics tell us that it usually takes seven times of people being asked before they say yes. So if it takes seven times for a yes, how many no's are you going to get? Six. Math isn't that hard, people. Six times you're going to get no's. It's okay. Just keep inviting. Or maybe this is what happens to you. I've talked to people and it freaks me out that they do this. A person will actually say yes. And then you just expect them to walk in here on their own. And so you don't call them on Thursday and say, hey, I'll meet you in the front and we can sit together and we'll get coffee and we'll hang out together. And what happens, some of the reasons why many people never come is because you never follow up and actually say, hey, I'll meet you outside. We'll come in together and we can sit together and be connected because walking through the doors is the scariest experience for some people they'll ever have because they don't think they're enough. They're not good enough. Some of you, I know, are trying. I know it. Some of you have had great success. Some of you see it as a value. But for some of you, you need to get back to making it a priority. So, where are are you at with these questions? Does fear speak louder than your values? And do you invite, but maybe... You just never follow up. Or maybe for some of you, and it's for many of you, you're living the invitational life. You're inviting people regularly. You're seeing that. And God is grateful for that. Folks, can you imagine what would happen, what it would be like if our church looked like Antioch or Poseidon Antioch? That people just kept inviting, inviting, and the Spirit of God came and people walked in. I want to believe, I want to think that a miracle like Pisidian Antioch could happen today, maybe even as we look into the fall. This fall we're going to start a series called Hot Mess. It's going to start on October 22nd. And what we're going to be doing is talking about how life is a hot mess. Every single one of us uh, 
as human beings, understand that our life can become toxic sometimes. Sometimes the people around us can be a a hot mess. And we ourselves get into that hot mess as well. But that people can actually live a life not as a hot mess, but with a sense of peace and freedom. And so my question is, who is it that you might invite? We're giving you over six weeks to be able to think about who is it that you could invite to this series. Now, maybe for others of you, you're like, I want to do this, Chris, but I don't know how. I need some tools on knowing how to do this. Well, I've gone to dozens of conferences before to try to get better at this. And in two weeks, we're going to offer a class for every single person to be a part of it as well. It's going to be called The Invitational Life and How We Become Contagious with Our Faith. This is a class that will actually help you to grow, and I encourage all of you to be a part of it. On the the, the 24th of September, it'll start, and I'm going to be at the class, so I hope each of you will be there as well. You know, uh, six months after Ivan committed suicide, after the funeral, I had the joy of baptizing Maria and all of her kids. And I'll never forget the power of God working and how excited I was to see these transformed lives. I've continued to stay connected with them over the years. And recently they sent me a picture uh, of them and what they look like now. They're not uh, seven years old anymore. Tony's way older than that. And their life with God is connected because of what God did. This is what I need you to know. The reason that their eternity is secure is not because of me. It's not because of my gifting. It's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I started actually not only having it as a value, but a daily priority to live out the invitational life. And as I took these steps that were risky at the time, it helped to open up doors and God wants to do the same in your world. God wants to be able to do his work because it's always him doing it because people matter to him. And his greatest desire is that every single person would come into a relationship with his son, Jesus. Folks, this is what I want to close with. Don't be like the religious leaders of Pisidian Antioch who were like, oh, we're not going to be uh, very extravagant with God's grace. We're going to hold it to ourselves. We're going to keep it to ourselves. We're not going to invite people in. But be like Paul and Barnabas who had this attitude of an invitational life, of inviting any of their friends, their family, their neighbors, their co-workers to come. And as they did, they were able to see God work in their life and for them to become good and right and whole with God. I pray that many of you starting this week would live the invitational life. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for inviting us to be a part of your family. Help us this week, God, as we 
enter into our neighborhoods, into the schools if we're a student, into our workplaces, and to live out this invitational life. Right now, with no one looking around or anyone saying anything, how many of you have someone in your life, just one person, who's disconnected from Christ or the church? Just one person in your life that's disconnected from Christ or the church. If you would, just raise your hand. I have one person. Maybe it's a coworker, neighbor, friend. I want to pray for them right now. Just raise your hand. God, I pray that you would use our church, use every person here who cares about someone else to show your love, to let them know, God, that they matter to you. God, I pray that you would give us courage for each hand that's lifted up to not just ponder the invitational life or see it as a value, but they would actually begin to make it a daily priority of their life to pray and connect and to invite. We ask and believe, God, that you can do miracles just like you did at Pisidian Antioch. And we pray that you would do it in the jar for your honor and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can put your hand down. You know, as we keep praying, maybe there are some of you that there's a void in your life right now. You're like, oh man, I want to be made good and right and whole with God. I want to be declared that one day. But the truth is, I've always thought that I had to do a whole bunch of religious stuff before it's there. But now you're telling me that I just have to follow the life of Christ. I need to follow him that I could do that. And if I did, he would welcome and receive me. Absolutely correct. And if that's you right now, I want to invite you in a prayer. It's not a prayer but that you say by yourself, but it's one that we share together. But if today's your day where you're like, I need that grace, I need that forgiveness, I need that love, I need the truth of understanding that I can be in heaven with God today to be made good and right and whole with God, I want to invite us in a prayer. And it's not a prayer that you uh, pray by yourself, but we'll pray it together. And so if you feel comfortable, if you just bow your head, close your eyes and just repeat this prayer after me. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. Make me brand new. I believe you died and rose again so I could live for you. Fill me with your spirit so I could know you, serve you, and follow you for the rest of my life. My life is not my own. Today I give it to you. Thank you for new life. Now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.